You're listening to the Life Tree Community Church Podcast, recorded on Sundays in Robbinsville, New Jersey. Our goal is to help you grow from root to fruit. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad you're here. Thank you for having me here at the church this morning. It's really exciting for me to be a part of this congregation because I have so many friends here. Um, I feel like I went to college with like half the people that are in your your pews here this morning. I'm sure that's not true, but it kind of does feel like I'm, you know, with with friends, you know, at home. So I'm glad to be here. I am Ariel Rainey. I'm from Baltimore, um, so it's not that far away. And I'm really just taking the, the most last couple of months to travel around to churches, to be able to share the needs of Spain, to be able to raise funds for us to continue what we're doing in Spain, and to help the church understand the missional obligation that we have as followers of Jesus to give the gospel to other people, not just to keep it for ourselves, not just to congratulate ourselves, oh, great, I found the right path to God, I'm on the right direction now, but to really be a representative of that path to everyone we come in contact with. Um, we're going to be talking this morning about doors. So um, if you are a really visual thinker uh, like I am, this is going to be a good one for you this morning um, because we're going to just talk about doors the whole time. I also want to give your church a gift. This is Spanish paprika. And um, it's if you are into the Food Network and that kind of thing, you can just go on like foodnetwork.com and put it in the search bar and you'll get all kinds of special recipes. It, if you are into cooking, this is actually like a highly prized thing. I actually in one church was like, I have Spanish paprika. And this person was like, <gasps> because they had been driving like three hours to a specialty store to get it. And I was like, wow, man, then I'm really popular today. I wish that I could give every single family one of these. I mean, that would be the best thing, but it just, I can't get the luggage home. Um, but if you are interested, I'm sure that the church has a way that you can bring a little baggie and get yourself a scoop or two of this. I recommend starting with it on your deviled eggs, you know, like everybody does, paprika, uh, scrambled eggs. You can also do it on grilled or roasted vegetables. If you really want to get adventurous, you can put it in chili. You can get it in beef stew. Spanish paprika is different from regular old paprika because they smoke the peppers, uh, you know, like a like the way you would smoke beef or smoke ham or something. They smoke them, and so it has a really nice smoky flavor, and that makes it distinct. So it's just something I want to give people that's like a taste of Spain. It even smells kind of smoky. It's kind of cool. So somehow you can, like, fight over this. I don't know. They make it in two versions, like sweet and spicy. And so I'm always kind of like, do I think this church is sweet or do I think they're spicy? I don't know. I brought you the sweet. Um, so the next slide, I'm just going to put this up there because I always forget later. We live in this incredible day and age where you can literally follow me every single day. If you want to know what missionaries are doing around the world nowadays, you can actually know in real time. I'm on Instagram at rainy days in Spain. Uh, my last name is rainy. That's a little clever pun. The umbrella, um, it is E-Y, R-A-I-N-E-Y, rainy days in Spain. Um, so that's, you know, Instagram is mostly visual for those of you who are young. It's a cool way to kind of see what's going on. You can also friend me on Facebook, and if you do that, I will add you into a secret group where I do missionary updates a couple times a week, prayer requests, testimonies as they happen, little videos, short things, just to kind of keep you involved. Um, If you are really into, like, other things, if you want to find me on Marco Polo and send me messages there, I'm really open to living my life in a transparent way so that you can feel like you're right there in Spain with me. That's the advantage we have of today's technology. So, 
don't just be uninformed. Like, you can connect with me in various ways. And I'm fine if during the message you actually open your phone and send me a request. I'll find it eventually. If you are not into all of that and you prefer to just sort of stay off the grid of life, that's fine. In the back at the table, you can get some information there and be a little bit more informed with stuff on that table. And then there's a little you know, old school paper and pen that you can actually write your email address and I can send you monthly updates via email. If you really don't even want to do that, you are free to write whatever you want on that little piece of paper. You can write a blessing, a prayer, something prophetic that's for your church, for you to to connect with me. So please connect with me somehow. Um, and then this morning, I just want to open with talking a little bit about what I've been doing the last couple of years. I've been a missionary for more than 20 years, but not just in Spain. I started in the Middle East, and then I went to Africa, uh, West Africa. Then I was in France, and now Spain, working with Africans and Middle Easterners who are immigrants or refugees in Europe. And especially, as you saw in the video, the last few years has just been unprecedented with the amount of people that are coming from all over the world into Europe. So on a, on a given day, I'm using four languages as I talk to people that I meet on the street, Arabic, English, French, and Spanish, because of all the places that I've lived and places that God took me. And now I'm in Spain kind of using all those years, 20 plus years of experience to be able to reach immigrants on the street. And there are still plenty of people who, who speak other languages than those, but at least we're making an outreach. For example, uh, I'm not the only missionary that has done this. You know, God has brought people through his leading from other countries as well into Europe to reach these refugees. So we just in November launched the first Arabic speaking church in Madrid. So that's because, you know, God brought a missionary that had been for 20 years in an Arabic-speaking place, brought him into Spain, and now for all of these who are able to read and speak Arabic fluently, they have a church now in their own language. So this is key stuff that's happening in our world, and I get to be a part of that. Paul, in his writing, he, he used the image of a door to symbolize the ministry that he was doing and the response of people to Christ. Two times, at least, in his writing, he, he referenced a door in that symbolic sense. We're not talking about literal doors. We're talking about imagery, you know, a figurative door. But he says in 1 Corinthians, and these verses today are from the NIV. They'll probably be very similar to your Bible if you're reading along or looking it up, making notes for later. It says here, a great door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. This is the very end of the book. Paul is signing off. He's, he's saying his, you know, salutations and greetings and give my love to this person. The last chapter of 1 Corinthians here, and as he's saying goodbye, he says, I want to come and visit you, but I'm choosing to stay here because a great door for effective work has been opened to me. It's interesting because... I read that verse so many times, and then this past year, I did a devotional on Greek words. I didn't study Greek in college, so it was really good for me to, like, learn. And the word for great door is mega 
a mega door. And I like that because we use, you know, mega even in English today, mega millions and stuff. So he says, you know, a mega door has been opened for me. So I'm going to stay here and do this work. And that's how I feel about Spain. God has, has opened this mega door by having immigrants and refugees from the entire world flood into Europe. We have this door that is immense that has never before been opened in this way. So, yeah, I want to stay there. I want to keep doing it. I want to make sure that I am maximizing that potential of this mega door. And I think it's interesting because if you've ever been to Europe, you probably have seen they have mega doors. The buildings are old. You know, they're like from 11 and 1200 before they had Home Depot where doors were standardized and you could just go buy a door casing and a door. You know, they had to to build their own, and sometimes some of the buildings, they had to build the doors big enough to get horses and carriages through, and others of them had these little tiny doors that, like, little pipsqueak kind of people went through, I don't know, and it's so interesting because the doors are not standard size, so you see sometimes these incredible handcrafted, you know, hand-carved wooden doors, and I'm one of those people that, like, just likes to take pictures of them. I'm not a tourist in Madrid. I live there, but sometimes I'll be in a street that I haven't been in before, and I'll be like, oh, my gosh, look at that door. I have to take a picture of it, you know, a selfie, you know, in front of this door. And a lot of times I see other people doing it. So I know it's not just me. There's probably, like, Instagrams, like Doors of Madrid, that you could follow because it, it's incredible. There are these mega doors And that's what I think about the ministry that God has called me to. Now, Paul also used the same kind of image in Colossians at the end of that one when he's saying goodbye. He says, pray for us that a door would be open for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. So we have two kind of images, you know, the idea that he had this immense door open in one community. And then again, where he's praying, please pray that this door would be open. And that's a call for the church. Pray for me, pray for Madrid, that a door would be opened so that we can proclaim that mystery of Christ. Notice in both chapters there, Paul talks about uh, an opposition. You know, in one, he's like, I'm literally in chains for this. And in the other, he talks about people who are opposing him. I think that's important because any time that you have a mega door that is open for the work of God, there's going to be opposition. The enemy does not want us to do what we do, so there's going to be opposition. The next slide is showing just a few pictures. Um, I, I don't want to do one of those old slideshows where everything is like photo, photo, photo. So we've got a few collages here. The first one is just kind of a little illustration of how many nationalities we're reaching on a daily basis. I love all those little kids and their little different colored hands. Um, this is the community where I'm working is 85 nationalities. In 10 blocks. It's intense. It's like a little UN. So we're able to work. That's why I said on a daily basis you're speaking multiple languages. You don't know who all is going to come through the door or who all you're going to be speaking to in the, in the neighborhood. 85 nationalities. And it's so ethnic that everybody that you see on the street is wearing like a different kind of outfit from their country. It's, it's not very westernized. Every little store has their sign in a different language. Every little restaurant is a different ethnic restaurant, Ethiopian next to Senegalese, next to the Indian, next to the Pakistani. There are five mosques in that 10-block neighborhood, but there's no Christian church. There's no presence of Christ other than missionaries going in and trying to spread the gospel. By and large, those 85 nationalities, majority are Muslim. 
not all from the same country, but definitely from the same background. So one of the things we're doing is we're helping people to learn to speak Spanish. And the bottom photo is one of the classes that we offer. People who come as immigrants and refugees, they need to assimilate. They have to be employable. Even if they come and they have literal asylum that the government gives them, they have only a certain amount of time to learn Spanish and get a job before the funds that they're given are cut off. So they really have a burden to, like, get that Spanish. And one thing that we've done is we've put together a program where we're teaching Spanish for women to be able to register their kids in school, to see doctors, to do practical things, go to the grocery store, be able to tell a taxi driver how to find their house. All of that stuff is in our opening course of Spanish. And then beyond that, they, they advance in their level. But that's one thing we can do to meet the community need. But when you're teaching someone a language, it gives you access for hours to talk. And that means we can talk about our favorite subject, which is Jesus. Everything that he's done in our life, everything he represents to us is over and over in the curriculum. We can use scripture as, you know, illustrating this is singular and this is plural. You know, this is how and and people are just able to learn and hear that gospel over and over. It's very effective. And then one of the things that I've done that I feel like has really been one of the greatest doors of influence is uh, we do street preaching in Madrid downtown in the it's basically like Times Square of Spain. There's a central plaza in Madrid. It's called Puerto del Sol. It's, you know, the most one of the most famous things in Spain. And so every day, six days a week, we're there street preaching on this red box. It's a little bit hard to see. It's red in the photo. So it's called On the Red Box. We get up on that box and we just start preaching. And people gather around, you know, they're listening. We, we try to make it funny and clever and so it's you know people are like wait what now what are they talking about and then as we're sharing then we kind of take something that's a practical illustration and then we start talking about how that connects us to Jesus and it's been really interesting you know when people are all listening to the funny story you're telling and then you're like and that's just the way it is when we give our life to Jesus and then they're like oh, this is religious, and you can kind of see on their face, like, oh, let's get out of here. But it's also amazing to me how the Holy Spirit just uh, convicts people. You'll see people, and, like, they're uncomfortable. I can literally watch them, like, fidget and, like, you know, I, you know but, they're, but they're still staying. They're, like, mesmerized by this. And then afterwards, we get down off the box, and we mill around the crowd and say, how about you? Have you ever had an experience like what I was sharing? You know, have you ever had this happen? And there are people who will stand and talk to us for an hour about the deepest, darkest secrets of their life. You know, if they start crying, that's just the Holy Spirit. He just brings that, you know, open. Obviously, some people move on. Some people are drunk and they heckle us. But there are people who hear the gospel and respond. That right there, getting up on that red box, is the hardest thing I've done in 20 years of ministry. <laughs> I, I... I'm not kidding. Like, you think it's hard to talk to a friend or neighbor about Christ. Try getting up on a box and just starting to yell, hey, I'd like to tell you something. And, you know, people start listening, and it's here, here I am just putting it out there. Um, but it's a discipline, and it honors God, and we see people come to Christ from it. So these are some of the immense things that God is doing there. But the next slide kind of shows you some of the opposition, some of what we're facing, homelessness 
is a huge issue in Madrid, particularly because immigrants who come who are illegal, they can't find jobs. So they end up just living on the streets. And by and large, it's 90% young, single men who then form little groups together. They don't have camps in Spain. They, they won't allow them to, to have camps. The, the police will come in and, and kind of raid it and get it disseminated. But they still kind of form little bands. And what happens is because they're hungry and they don't have anything else, they end up being easy prey for drug dealers who say, hey, you know what, if you sell for me, then you'll get a little bit of money and you can put food in your stomach. These guys have, um, there's a system in Madrid, maybe it exists in the U.S., I don't know, I, I guess I was sheltered, but they rent mattresses for eight-hour shifts so a slumlord just takes an apartment, he lays down mattresses, you know, in the whole thing, and then he can rent that same mattress three times a day for eight-hour shifts for people to sleep. So they at least have a place to, like, be, you know, for eight hours in a bed, but then the other 16 hours of the day, when it's not their shift on that mattress, they're out in the street with just their backpack with everything they own. And then, of course, it breeds substance abuse. So it breeds violence. It, it breeds issues. And this is a huge need in Madrid right now. I, I'm telling you, if you were in the city right now, you can't walk 10 feet without seeing these pockets of young African guys that are just out. You know, they have nothing to do for 16 hours of the day except get into trouble. And what we need, the opposition of the enemy, what we need, and I say this in faith everywhere I go, is young men who will follow the call of God and reach these African guys. I have a bunch of girls. You probably saw them in the video. I've, like, got 15, 20 young women who work with me, for me. You know, they're in mentorship with me. I cannot send a 22-year-old blonde girl out to reach, you know, 150,000 African men. I, I can't do that. It's not culturally correct. It's not advisable in any sense. We need a young man like Paul and Silas, young men like Timothy and Luke in the New Testament who will say, I will go reach these men. And I believe by faith when we pray for that, when I declare that that's our need, that God will respond, that some young men will say, I want to go and I want to reach those guys. This is our probably our biggest need right now. And so everywhere I go, I, I keep saying this. I keep believing that God's going to give us what we need. So pray for that with me. That's a little bit of the what we're facing kind of coming against us in the open door that Paul talked about. Um, but pray that we can continue to speak out that, uh, that message, the mystery of Christ. So let's continue on. I don't want to take all my time just describing things that are going on in Madrid. Uh, definitely you'll get to hear about that more and you can ask me a million questions afterwards. I'm happy to, to talk about that. But I want to also share with you a little bit about kind of how the scripture uses this image of the door through the entire Bible. I didn't even realize this myself until I started reading a little bit more. You can go on to two slides actually. So the very first time that the Bible uses the door as an image to kind of symbolize our response to God is in Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. I don't know if you guys are in like a read through the Bible program or whatever. You're probably in Genesis right now. So we're going to hit on a couple of things you've probably even been reading this week. So in Genesis chapter 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel. 
even if you didn't even know who Jesus was a year ago, you probably have heard of Cain and Abel, the first two brothers, the first murder. So what happened was God had set up a program where he where they saw offered sacrifices for their sin. They didn't have Jesus. They didn't have a way to be forgiven. So they had to sacrifice animals, put that before God as a way to say, I'm sorry for my sin. Please accept this. And God would forgive them. So Cain was a farmer. He didn't have animals to sacrifice. Abel was, and he had animals. He, he was a shepherd, so he had his animals. Cain, being a farmer, thought, well, I don't have animals. What I'll do is I'll give to God the best of my, my produce. So he gave to God a, a good offering. He didn't offer God garbage. He, he gave him his fruits and vegetables, but it wasn't what God asked for. It, it wasn't actually, you know, what God wanted. So God rejected the sacrifice, but he did accept Abel's sacrifice, which was an animal. It was correct. And this is so human. Cain got mad at Abel. He probably was mad at God, too. But for some reason, Abel became like the one that he could kind of take it out on. And, and he was fuming against his brother. And God spoke to him in Genesis chapter 4. God says to him, Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And I like that image. Even when I was a kid, I always could, like, picture so easily this, like, little thing crouching at the door. Uh, This is New Jersey. You're not exactly the country. But I think even here you get the concept of in the summer, if you leave the doors open, things are going to come in. You know, animals, bugs. I remember my mother would always be like, shut the door. You're letting in all the mosquitoes, you know, flies, stuff like that. And that's just harmless stuff. That's not even, you know, potentially worse things that could get in the door. You've probably seen those things on Facebook where people have, like, bears at their back porch, you know, in Virginia probably. I don't know. But hopefully not here. But these are the things that it's like this image. If you do not do what is right, sin is right there at the door just waiting for you to open it. And let it in. And we, being human, really don't have the ability to control that door. Sin is at the door, and we are stupid enough to be like, "Mm, I'm going to open it just a little bit. I'm going to see. Oh, it's in there. It's got me. Like, that's we're foolish like that. There are people who have been loving and serving Jesus for 20 years, and they still struggle with opening that door and letting the sin right back in. Addiction, it's not just for people out on the street. It happens to us, too. We let sin come in the door, and then, this is what the verse says, it's not just going to come in and, you know, stay right there by the door and curl up. No, it's going to attack you. It's going to master you. It will control you. And that is not just Cain. That is the human condition. Whether you live here or whether you live in Madrid, that is human nature. Sin comes in, and it controls us. Probably we just went through Christmas season. You may have read or watched a version of the Christmas story uh, with Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a mean guy. Christmas Eve, he has a dream. Well, he has three dreams, I guess. These ghosts visit him. And the first ghost is the ghost of Christmas past. Yep. It's his old business partner, and he wakes him up because he's clunking and clanking around in a bunch of chains. He's got all these chains, and he says... I wear the chains I forged in life. 
I think that's like such a cool line. And I think Dickens must have known scripture because this is it's actually scriptural in Lamentations. It talks about every sin becomes the chain until we are bound and we're so controlled by it that there is nothing we can do to break free of that. And there are people that walk around this community that are wearing the chains they've forged in this life because sin entered the door and it controls them and they can't break free from it. This, like I said, it's the human condition. So what hope do we have? If sin is right there at the door and it's going to control us, what are we supposed to do? I, I, can't, I can't control sin. Now, the Bible gets even a little bit scarier. After this, in Genesis 6, we get the story of Noah and the ark. Again, a story that most people have heard, even if they haven't grown up in church. In fact, we use it to decorate children's nurseries and stuff. This beautiful little ark and all the little animals, two by two. It's such a lovely story of annihilation that we just want to share it everywhere, you know. It's it's freaky. If you actually start reading this, I was actually reading it this week because of my little Bible reading plan. And like five times in the section, it's like every living creature perished and God caused every living creature to perish. You know, it's every single thing that breath had in its nostrils was wiped out. I was like, man, okay, I get it. Like it was, it was gone. The Bible says God regretted that he had made mankind because people were so wicked, all they thought about was evil. Their every thought was how they could do evil. And so God said, you know what, forget this. I'm going to start again. I'm going to take this righteous man. Noah was righteous and, and he found favor in God's eyes. One person out of an entire, you know, the world, one. But God took him and his family and animals two by two and he put them in this ark. Now, I'd have to go back and read it again, but I want to say it was like a hundred, more than a hundred years that Noah heard from God and built the ark before the actual rain came. So you're talking a hundred years, maybe generations of people that had the opportunity to straighten up their life, that had the opportunity to listen to Noah's warning and get into the ark with him to, to consecrate themselves to God a hundred some years. And in the end, still, only Noah and his family entered that ark. But this is what the Bible says in the next, in the next slide. It says that the animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God commanded Noah. And then the Lord shut him in. Different versions actually say the Lord shut the door. Because there is a door of God's judgment that we also can't control. I can't control that door of sin. But I also don't control the door of God's judgment. And there comes a point where God says, this door, access to me, the opportunity to make the right choice, to come to me, to be forgiven, that door is wide open now. But at some point, that door will shut. And his judgment will be final. And there won't be another opportunity to come in. So when Noah entered the ark, you know, a hundred years had passed that God had given this opportunity in his mercy. And then... The door shut. The New Testament tells a similar story. Jesus himself tells a little parable about these young women who were waiting for the bridegroom to come to a wedding. And back then, the wedding didn't start until the groom showed up. Now we mostly wait for the bride. But back then, they waited for the groom. So all these young girls are there. They're waiting. They're waiting. Five of them came prepared to wait all night if they had to. They had plenty of oil in their lamp. They were 
you know, prepared to stay. And five of them really didn't think ahead. They weren't ready at all. They were kind of like silly. And then, you know, the groom took his time, took his time, took his time. And they're like, what are we going to do? We're, we don't have any more oil in our lamp. So we, we've got to like go buy oil somewhere. So, you know, we're going to go. Don't start the party without us. And then off they went. And of course, it's Murphy's Law. As soon as those five girls left to get their oil, the groom showed up. And the party started. And the Bible says they, the door was shut. Later they came and they're banging, come on, come on, we're back, let us in, let us in. But the party had started. And Jesus tells that story because he's saying there will come a day when God will say, enough. Are you ready for that moment? Have you made the decision to prepare yourself ahead of time? Or are you just, you know, freely going through your life? I have no idea when God's judgment's going to come. But when it does, whoops, I'm on the outside banging. Please, no, come on. Now, now I want to believe you. Now I'm ready to give my life. But the door of God's judgment is shut. And that's important for us to understand because right now we live in this, this day of mercy, a day of grace that we have the opportunity to respond to God. Every relative, every neighbor, everyone you know who needs Jesus, right now they can get him. But there will come a day when the door of judgment will shut and God will say, you had your chance. And now it's done. Uh, in Spain... People always ask, what's the weather like there, you know? It's very similar to here. As a matter of fact, in Madrid right now, it's about 40 degrees every day. It gets down to maybe 30 every now and then at night, but you never see snow or ice. So if you like cold weather but you don't like shoveling, Madrid's great. Um, I kind of miss the snow after a while. I'm like, look, if it's going to be 40 degrees every day, we ought to get something out of it. Um, there's no snow or ice. It's, it's just kind of temperate. But then in the summer, it's unbelievably hot. Unbelievably. So my apartment, I'm on the third floor out of like seven in a building, uh, which is really great for heat. Like I don't really have to use my heat at all. I'm kind of insulated by all the other floors. But in the summer, my apartment is 90 degrees the entire month of July and August. And I know this because I have a little thing that, that is on the wall. I can't adjust it. Like do not mistake me. I don't get to, all it does is tell me it's 90 degrees. And for the sole purpose of me walking out into the living room every day and being like, it's still 90 degrees, oh my gosh. Why do I torture myself by having this proof? Um, it, it's incredibly hot. And so you just kind of have to survive the summer. There, most places aren't air conditioned, apartments certainly not. So it's just survival, you know, and you have all these tips and tricks. You get up and shower in the middle of the night a couple of times. Truthfully, one time I counseled camp here in New Jersey and it was about the same. So uh, on the level, yeah, it was really bad. It was at Valley Forge and there wasn't air conditioning then either. So I learned, praise God, how to do this. It is so hot in July and August that you, you know, just wear like t-shirts and boxer shorts all summer and just sit in front of, I have a fan literally in every single room and you kind of just don't move. And you try to make yourself feel cooler. You think you're like, if I can just mind over matter this thing, you know. So one thing that you do is open all the doors and windows so that a cross breeze can be created. Now, remember, outside, it's 110. In my apartment, it's 90. Outside, it's 110. So the breeze that's coming through is hot air. But you can make yourself feel, if you're sweaty enough, you're like, oh, breeze. But so you try to like fool yourself. And what happens is because I'm just like not moving and sitting in front of fans, 
I'll end up like reading something or being, you know, it's like super quiet and chill in my apartment. And then, bang, one of those windows or doors, because of the lovely cross breeze, like slams. Because, you know, the the breeze came through. And every time, it's when I'm, like, the most quiet and chill, and then it, like, scares me to death. Like, I jump five inches, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it was just the kitchen door. And I go and, like, move the brick that try to prop it all open. But it scares me every time that that door slams. But I think about the judgment of God. And I think about the moment when God says, enough. I have had mercy and grace up to this point, but now it's finished. And when that door slams shut, it's going to be like in my apartment. It's going to be fierce, and it's going to be final. The amazing thing about God is that he knows we can't control sin at the door. He, He knew that when he told Cain. That's why he was like, you need to do your sacrifices. You need to do this correctly because you need me. That's what God was telling Cain. You can't control sin at the door. You cannot control the door of God's judgment. Not one of us can. But the amazing thing is that God himself comes to the door of our heart. This is what Revelation tells us. It's Like I said, it goes from Genesis to Revelation. The entire Bible uses this imagery. It says here in Revelation 3.20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That is incredible that we can't control sin. It it jumps in and masters us every time we open the door. We can't control God's judgment. But this door is totally yours. You get to decide whether Jesus comes in or not. You get to open however fully you want to open that door to him. It's your door. And that's important because you need to understand he will not enter what you will not open. You understand that? He cannot force his way in what you will not willingly open to him. And that is a huge, huge thing. I also think that sometimes we misunderstand this verse. When I was a kid, we had a very lurid painting of this on our church wall. You know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And Jesus was like sadly waiting for people to let him in. And so we, I guess I thought as a kid, the important part was open the door, which I'm not saying it's not. It is important. Open the door. But the whole rest of the verse says, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. And that's Very important, because I don't know how it works here, but in Spain, if I order pizza, he comes to the door and I open it, but I don't invite him in to eat a slice. The delivery guy stays at the door. I open it. He hands me a pizza. He doesn't really even cross the threshold, really. He kind of stands right there at the entryway and waits for me to hand him the money. He gives me my change. I'm like, oh, keep the change, and I feel really, you know, generous. It's like 10 cents. But, you know, oh, by the way, no tipping in Spain. You know, so if ever you really want to take a nice trip as a family, you don't have to tip for anything. It's not cultural there. So then you come back to America, and you have to keep reminding yourself, give a tip, give a tip. So here I am. I'm giving him, you know, this money. He gives me this pizza. I put the pizza on the kitchen counter and say, okay, thanks, have a nice day, see you next week, and shut the door. I opened it to him. We had a transaction, but I didn't 
invite him in to eat with me. And I think sometimes we have people who sit in church pews even and say, oh, yeah, I opened the door to Jesus a long time ago. But did you? Or did you open far enough to be like, give me the transaction, Jesus, that we're making. I'll give you Sunday mornings. You give me eternal life. I'll give you this prayer. You give me this. I'll give you, you know, you give me good health and I'll give you. But but kind of stay at the door, Jesus. I'm not really inviting you to come in and eat and then you, you know, make yourself at home. That's how you know that someone's really an invited guest. When they come all the way in, they're going to use your bathroom. They're going to see what your living room looks like. They're probably going to see that door that you kind of kept shut from the party because, you know, that's where they're going to put their coat. That's the way it works. You know, if you're giving Jesus access, you're saying, come all the way in. I'm opening the door all the way And that's the grace of God, that even though we can't control the sin and we can't control his judgment, we can control how much access we give him to our heart. And each one of us has that opportunity now more than ever, 2019, the beginning of the year, to say, you know what, Jesus, I don't want you at the door. You're not the pizza guy. I don't want you to be my transactional thing. I want you to be all the way in. I want you to live here and and make this your space. Now, the last thing I want to say is that, especially as the church, we have an obligation, even beyond our own individual response to Christ. Every single person here, you are responsible how you, how you open that door to Jesus for yourself. You are responsible for how much you open that door. But we are also collectively responsible for giving that door to other people. Now, in the late 1800s, there was a child. He was 10 years old. He was in, um, in the edge of Germany and France. And this child was bitten by a dog 14 times. I think it was 1885. He was bitten by this dog 14 times, which I think would be really horrible no matter who you are, if you like dogs or not. 14 times this dog bit this, you know. But the, the tragedy wasn't just the bite. The tragedy was that the dog was rabid. And at that time, there was no cure for rabies. So his mother was so disturbed by her son. He's 10 years old. He's dying from this dog attack. She had heard or read that there was a scientist who was just beginning research on curing rabies in in Paris. So she took him on a train all the way to Paris to find this doctor, basically stormed this guy's office and was like, you have to heal my child. And the guy said... I can't. I've literally just begun this research. I don't have a vaccine. I have nothing for human consumption. I've done nothing with human test subjects. We are not there yet. I I cannot cure this child. But the lady begged and pleaded, and she was like, look, he's 10 years old. He's going to die either way. Anything you do would be better than nothing at this point. So she convinced him to take, he he had been implanting rabies in rabbits, to see if he could, you know, study their genes. So he was like, okay, I'll take this rabbit formula that I have and I'll give it to this child. But really, I, it's, it's not going to work. Like, I, I don't have anything ready for human consumption. So he gave this, this serum to this child. And for three weeks, the child didn't die. He, he was still living, but he was not improving. So... They waited for three weeks, and I think we're so used to Disney versions that we're like, then the angels sang and he raised, no, three weeks they waited just to see if this kid would live or die. But at the end of the three weeks, he lived. 
He began to show signs of improvement. And that is actually the way that we had the rabies vaccine today. The first person that was cured of rabies was this 10-year-old child in, I think, 1885. And his name was Joseph Meester. And the man who saved him was Louis Pasteur who went on to become like an incredible scientist and he pasteurized milk and, you know, all these things we use today, germ science, this guy pioneered. So once word got out that he had actually cured someone of rabies and now there was a cure, people, you know, Dan joked this morning, tens of people get rabies in America today or maybe even worldwide. But back then, it was like hundreds and hundreds of people that had rabies that were just, it was a death sentence. So they all came out of the woodwork. They started to find this guy. So he got funding and he he built this big building and he hired other doctors so that they could create this huge lab. And it took, you know, a couple years to do all that. In the meantime, this kid Joseph grew up and as a young adult, he decided, I don't want to pursue a professional career. What I want to do is be the doorman of this new building, this new laboratory building. I'm going to be the door. This is a true story. You can look it up on Google. I'm going to be the doorman of that building, which is not a prestigious job. You're opening the door. You're sweeping and cleaning up, you know, that kind of thing, taking the trash out. It's not exciting. And so somebody asked him, you know, you were saved from death. You could do anything, literally. Why would you choose to be the doorman of this building? And he said, for two reasons. I want to look on the face of the man who saved me every single day of my life. And I want to tell every single person who comes to these doors that I found salvation here, and they can too. That is the job of the church. We do not solely answer to God for the door of our own heart. We answer to God for the door of access that we give everybody else. We are the doorkeepers in the house of God. David said in the Psalms, in in Psalm 8410, you probably have sang it before, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I would rather have a meaningless, nothing, no excitement kind of job where I can stand and tell people, he saved me and he can save you too. I was dead when they brought me in here and he brought me back to life. I had no hope when I came through these doors, but here you can find hope. If you are completely dead and gone and you have no other hope right now, you can find that here. That is the job of the church. That is the access that we provide people every single day. And the friends that you have who don't know Jesus yet, you get to be the doorkeeper that says, let me tell you about my experience. When I was just nothing, he was able to raise me up and give me the life that I have now. And not only that, but you have that access to make that door open all across the world. Some of you may actually go on a mission trip to Mexico and open that door wider so that people can hear about Jesus. Some of you have the access to be able to give and say, you know what? What am I doing with my money? I would like to take $25 a month and make sure that the doors stay open somewhere where people are hearing about Jesus for the first time. And so you make a decision to partner with missionaries, to partner with the projects that the church has, because that's a value that you have. You want to be a doorkeeper that says, I am opening the door so that everybody else can have this access. You may be a doorkeeper yourself. At some point, I said yes to God. I did not know it was going to be 20 years. I did not know it was going to be four different countries. That I would say, I will go and I will literally open the door so that other people can have the same Jesus that I had really from birth. I grew up in the church. There was never a day I didn't know about the grace of God. But there are other people that have literally never heard the name of Jesus. They have never met a believer in Jesus. 
And so we get to be the doorkeeper that says, here, you can be raised to life again. With Jesus, you can live again and be cured forever of everything that right now is killing you. Would you pray with me this morning? Actually, why don't you go ahead and stand? Let's stretch and and let's just focus on Jesus. We can't control sin. I wish I could control sin for myself. I wish I could control sin for you. I wish I could control sin for people who are addicts. But the fact is, the door of sin is something that human beings, no matter how hard they try, no matter how many self-help books they read, they cannot control it. And the door of God's judgment is going to close soon. So the only chance we have, the only survival we have, is to answer Jesus at the door. When he knocks and says, let me all the way in. Let me do something new in your life this year. Open up rooms in your little heart house that you haven't been willing to share and give me that kind of access. And then open the door wide for those who have yet to hear. And then open up the door so that everybody else has the same access to my life-giving power as I've given you. I believe this morning that some of you, this is a message that really resonates in your heart because you want so badly to respond to God in this way. You want to open your own life to Him more. You want to give Him more access. You want that to be a wide open thing, not some transactional here, stay at the doorway. You want it to be all the way with Jesus is here. And now is a good time to make that dedication, to open up the door. And some of you are ready to go beyond that. Jesus is is already all over your house. That's great. But you're not opening the door enough for other people to hear. You're still nervous to actually tell your coworkers about Jesus. You're still embarrassed sometimes to tell people about what God's done for you. And yet here we have this incredible opportunity to be the doorkeeper to offer the gospel to someone else. And so this year you need to take up that challenge. You need to say, I'm going to be the doorkeeper. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God and and give access to the gospel to other people by my own words and testimony, by my life, by my money. I will give to make sure that others have the gospel. I will speak up to give others the gospel. And if that's you this morning, I just want you to raise your hand. I want you to, to be able to, kind of what Carrie said earlier, to put your hand up and say, I will. There's something sometimes about just being like, yeah, I'm not just going to do this in my heart like a little wimp. I'm going to just be like bold and be like, yes, I will this year. God, give me that person. Give me that. Show me the way. Provide the money so I can go on this mission trip, Lord. I will be the doorkeeper in your house. Thank you. Thank you. So many of you raised your hands. Thank you. Because I know that God is going to do great things because of our obedience to him this is his heart this is what he wants to do he wants to save the world we're just saying i will be that access point so that god's grace can go out and and my words will be what he wants me to say and my finances will be what he wants me to give my action will be for him thanks for listening to the life tree community church podcast for more information about our church visit us at wearelifetree.com or on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Life Tree.